millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show... The Haunted Life of Jean Rees, with Miranda Seymour, and her new book, I Used to Live Here Once. Miranda Seymour, celebrated as a biographer, novelist, memoir writer and critic, has been a visiting professor at Nottingham Trent University. She is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. She is the author of the award-winning memoir, In My Father's House, and her many acclaimed biographies include A Ring of Conspirators, An Innovative Study of Henry James and His Literary Circle, Otterline Morrill, Robert Graves, Mary Shelley, In Byron's Wake, and The Bugatti Queen. And today we're going to be talking about Miranda's latest biography, which is I Used to Live Here Once, The Haunted Life of Jean Rees. Miranda, welcome to Little Atoms. Lovely to be with you. Would you tell us, first of all, why Jean Rees then? What was attractive to you about writing this book? I've always really loved Jean Rees's work. I think I've probably been reading her for maybe 20, 30 years. And one of the things that fascinated me about her was that she came from the Caribbean. But as far as I could see, the other biographers who'd written about her before had never actually been out there, although her work is just haunted by that, which is why I called it I Used to Live Here Once. The other thing I really wanted to look at and kind of try and shake people's opinions up about a little bit was that because she she was a drinker, she wasn't the only woman writer who drank, but I can't think of another woman writer who has been so judged for her drinking. And I think that's because, in fact, I'm sure it's because she wrote about women who on the surface seem very like her. They also, you know, they come from the Caribbean sometimes. They sometimes live in Paris. They have the kind of personality trait she does. But what's so interesting is that not one single one of them is either a a reader. She was a voracious, very intelligent reader or a writer. So she writes about women who drink, who have no way out. But she always had a way out because she said, I have to earn my death. And what she meant by that was, I'm going to earn my death by my writing. That's my kind of validation for the way I live. So let's start with her, her childhood in Dominica then. So for a start, she's not born Jean Rees. That's a, that's a pen name. But tell us something about 
the situation she was born into because this is this is the time when so she's born in the in the late 19th century mm-hmm. so it's the sugar plantations that would have been there in Dominica and the the plantation class mm. um, that was the white population of Dominica mm. that was in the past so there's just a little remnant of that into where she is born. That's right. And another thing that's really striking, Dominica is an extraordinary island. It's in the French Caribbean near Guadeloupe and Martinique. So Jean Rhys grew up very familiar with French, which helped when she went to Paris. But in Dominica, there had never been, like in places like Jamaica or Barbados, a really rich planter class. Her own family, the Lockharts, her mother's family, were planters, and she was very ashamed by what she learned about her her grandfather and her great-grandfather, both of whom had been oppressive slave owners. But by the time that Jean Rees came along, she was born in 1890, the family had fallen on hard times. And although the old plantation house, such as it was, was still there, it was as far as one can make out, already rather derelict. It was um, her grandmother was living there and no great aunt, but there weren't lots of people working there. And the whole old world of slavery and, and what came out of that was reduced really to when I went out there, one extraordinary symbol, because when I went, the house had already long been ruined. But right beside it is a gigantic iron mill wheel. And on the middle of it, which interested me because I come from Nottingham, were the words made in Derby. And I don't know why that said more to me about slavery than a lot did. And I know that Jean Rees must have seen that wheel and it must have been in her consciousness of this kind of past world. But she herself was the daughter of a Welsh doctor who married her mother and this white Creole woman who was a very, very tyrannical mother. She loved her sons, the older boys. She seems not only not to have loved Jean, but to have been very brutal to her and to have whipped her savagely until she was 12 years old and to have been very opposed to the idea of her having any kind of education. And the only reason that Jean got an education was because her father, whom she adored, and he sounds a a very jolly, very flirtatious, delightful man. Everybody loved him. And he was determined that his favorite child and his cleverest child, she was writing poems and putting on plays by the age of 12 or 13, was jolly well going to get an education. So he sent her to the local convent school And immediately she was in a very confusing situation because the island, being French, is Catholic. And the other girls at the school were darker-skinned Creole girls. And they didn't want a white girl from a Protestant father coming to be in their class. So she was made to feel like an outsider. And That sense of being an outsider, longing to be black, she wrote later, when she watched the carnival dancing along the street in the the town where they lived a lot of the time, Rosu. Then she said, I would long to be black, meaning really, I think, I long to be free, to be not being told what to do, to not be 
put into little white socks and made to sit nicely on the stairs and smile at strangers and so on. And I think that that sense of alienation was in her right from the beginning, from her childhood, which was something nobody had really looked at before. And so ironically, she's then sent to England mm. for schooling, where she becomes a, a different sort of an outsider at that school. So tell us what her first impressions or experiences were of what would have then been like the mother country. She was a very bright girl. And so she had won a place at the Perth School in Cambridge, which was back in those days, this is 1907, 96. It's a time when very few girls were getting a decent education, and Jean Rees was one of the ones who did. Well, pretty much everybody out in the Caribbean in those days, and of course much later, going on poignantly right up to well, when the Windrush um, arrived in 1948, they had this sense of tremendous attachment to what they called the mother country. It was a fantasy place, which they adored. They looked at pictures of the Queen. They venerated the idea of this romantic little island, which was going to welcome them. It was their other home, their kind of um, home across the sea. Well, for Jean Rees, just as much later for the poor Windrush arrivers, this wasn't so at all. She arrived into a country where she was treated as an outsider. She had an island accent, meaning she had a lilt in her voice that you might hear in somebody from Jamaica, perhaps a very, very identifiable, very charming accent, but it is not distinguished as English. That was against her from the beginning. And as bad luck would have it, when she arrived at the Perth School as an extremely timid, hypersensitive young girl from halfway across the world and knowing nobody, as very bad luck would have it, The class were studying Jane Eyre. Now, probably all our listeners know that Jean Rhys is most famous for the last novel she wrote, Wide Sargasso Sea, which is a sequel to Jane Eyre about Bertha Mason, the mad woman in the attic who Mr. Rochester puts away and then tries to marry Jane and keep the mad woman hidden upstairs. Well, of course, the mad woman was from the Caribbean. Bertha Mason was from the very part of the world that Jean had come from. So when they started reading this, she was already being called Miss West Indies or the Hottentot or the Savage. And they were so cruel, the girls, as perhaps girls in boarding schools always are and always have been. So that was extremely distressing to her. And as bad luck would have it, Bertha Mason, of course, Bernstein, Thornfield Hall. And while they were reading Jane Eyre, the purse school nearly burned down. There was a fire that broke out and um, Jean was held responsible for this. And then she had great dreams of going on to become an actress. Years later, her daughter said that actually her mother could always have been an actress. She was a natural actress. She could play any part. And she used to take part in her own plays back in the Caribbean. But when she went along to amazingly get a place at the earliest version of RADA, and they gave her a place at once, and she's a very, very brilliant young lady. She'd only been there a year when her father wrote from Dominica because he was having to pay for her, her classes and said to the head of the acting school, how's she doing? Has she got a great future? And this wretched man wrote back to him and said, she is 
very, very good. She's taken all the leading parts at the school, but she'll never get anywhere because of that accent. So her father ended her training there. And poor Reese doing anything rather than go back to Dominica. She certainly didn't love England, but she loved even less the idea of going back to her dreadful mother in Dominica. And her father sadly died um, the same year that she, she left the acting school. So she went off to audition at a place called Blackmore's Agency. And she did a bit of dancing and singing and lifted up her skirts, ankle length skirts back in those days. And they thought, hmm. And they gave her a part in a touring group, which was going around England with a production that was on in London called Armis Gibbs, which was incredibly successful with the gaiety girls all dancing and all very glamorous. But of course, the life of a touring girl was anything but. And that's what Jean Rhys lived for the next two or three years. Very tough years indeed. So as you said, I mean, most people would have heard of the White Sox SOC. It's, I think it's uncontroversial to say that it's one of the, the best and most loved works in the novels in the English language now. But people will be less familiar with her earlier career. The White Sox SOC is a long time coming. She has a, an earlier writing career for the novels. And then there's this sort of weird period of time, like a quarter of a century, where she is she's sort of not being successful. She's flying under the radar. So we'll talk about each of those periods of her career as we go. So first of all, tell us something about her early writing career and I guess the Paris years as well. In 1919, Jean Rhys made a very brave step. She married a very delightful young man who was Dutch, French, Belgian. He wasn't quite clear about what he was, but he was incredibly attractive and charming. She'd met him at a boarding house in London where she stayed during the war. And he asked her to marry him, but she didn't learn that he already had a wife in Paris. And that was why he asked her to go and marry him at The Hague instead. And when the couple got to Paris, where her first child was born and tragically died, aged only three weeks, Jean Rhys started writing back in London before the war. She was trying out um, stuff, but not publishing anything. She wasn't really thinking about being a published writer. But evidently, while she was with this very attractive and talented man in Paris, she started writing seriously. And they went out for a while to Vienna and Budapest. And her first story that was published was called Vienne. And it was about the time they had there and how her husband um, got caught in Besling, which I'm afraid happened quite a few times with him. And they had to flee and come back to Paris very much under the radar, which was um, very much part of Jean Reese's experience throughout her life. When they got back to Paris, Longley, was, her husband, was caught again for embezzling. And at the same time, Jean Reese had been trying to show some of her work to get it published. And as luck would have it, she had terrible luck and she had good luck. The good luck was that her work was seen by Ford Maddox Ford. Now, Ford Maddox Ford in the mid-20s was one of the most influential figures in writing in the world. And he took one look at Jean Reese's writing and he said, this is extraordinary. 
he was the publisher of a magazine called Transatlantic Review at that time, um, which was publishing people like, I know, Hemingway and Joyce, I mean, great names. And in the last issue of his magazine, for the first time, the name Jean Rees, which was given to her by Ford, her real name was Gwendolyn Rees Williams. Jean Rees appeared alongside Joyce and all these kind of people like that. Um, her name appeared in Transatlantic Review for the first time in 1925, alongside those of James Joyce and Hemingway and many others equally famous. And this was her breakthrough. But her husband had been caught embezzling again. He was on her uppers. She was taken in by Ford and his um, partner, Stella Bowen, and looked after. And they did their best to help her. But the trouble with Jean Reese was that she was one of those people who was very proud, very independent. When she drank, she would get very, very wild. And quite rapidly, they decided they simply couldn't cope with her. Anyway, there was a falling out. And out of that came her first novel, Quartet, which was published in 1928. Ford, to his credit, had found her um, an editor in London who became her second husband. And he had also published or helped to publish her first volume of stories, which was sketches about Paris, little short stories, including Vienna, which appeared in 1927. And Ford went on helping her, as I discovered, throughout his life. But the falling out between him and Reese was so great, she felt so bitter about the way that she felt he had treated her that they never met again. Reese went to live in England with the man who became her second husband. And Leslie Tilden Smith is one of those people who it's, one feels really bad as a biographer because I can't think of anybody who did so much, so undemandingly, so patiently, and so uncomplainingly as Leslie did for Jean Reese. He basically became her, her secretary, her publisher, her editor, her everything. They would have terrible fights. He drank too. Once they were both thrown into prison for a night for getting into a fisticuffs fight in Soho at four in the morning, which gives you a bit of a flavor of Jean Reese's private life. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Miranda Seymour and we're talking about her new book, I Used to Live Here Once, The Haunted Life of Jean Rees. And Miranda, we talked about that early flowering of her career that, you know, she was as much as anybody a self-sabotager in terms of her career. It's 25 years after that, that the Wide Sog SOC comes about. And we'll talk about how that book happened in a moment, but just tell us something about those wilderness years. We've mentioned a couple of her husbands. She has three husbands and all three of her husbands, you know, if Jean Reese had been a fictional character written by her, one of her contemporaries, like Patrick Hamilton or something, we'd have thought mm. it was an exaggeration because, you know, all of her, all of her husbands sound like characters out of novels. So tell us something about that life that she lived in that interim between the, the beginning of the career and the massive success at the end of the career? So the beginning of Jean Reese's writing career was pretty successful. She published 1934 Voyage in the Dark, which she started by calling Two Tunes, because it's a very stylistically ambitious book, and it kind of plays with the idea of a young girl in it, Anna Morgan, remembering her past in the Caribbean, like Jean Reese, but also living in the present in a very harsh and unloving London, where poor Anna eventually descends into prostitution. And in the first version of the book, she actually dies while while having an abortion. But the publishers couldn't take the gloom, so they made her give Anna a chance of life at the end. Like all of Reese's work, the reviews were mixed. They all recognised the extraordinary quality of her writing, that this was a voice that was not like Virginia Woolf or Catherine Mansfield. She wrote in a way more like a poet. She had an absolute sense of where every single word would go. And I have to say, although she drank like a fish a lot of her life, she did not drink when she was revising her books. Her mind was absolutely clear, and you can see that in the work. So she wrote Voyage in the Dark. And then she went on and she wrote what I think is her masterpiece, which is Good Morning Midnight. And Good Morning Midnight is a book which is, again, about a woman very like Jean Rhys, Sasha Jensen, walking the streets of Paris, 
looking for somewhere where she can have a drink, suspicious of everybody, very witty, very dark, an extraordinary woman and terrific creation. But this book was being offered to publishers in 1938-39. And just on the brink of war, it was the last thing that anybody wanted to read. And it was this misfortune of being out of tune with the times, as well as having a horrendous personal life, that really dogged poor Reese through the middle of her career. So after Leslie Tilden Smith had died tragically and suddenly in 1945, Reese went on writing some of the most brilliant of her work, which is her short stories and her wartime short stories. But again, of course, she offered these in 1947. What people wanted was, I don't know, Gone with the Wind, Fantasia, um, Georgette Heyer, light stuff. They did not want dark, terrible, black stories. So they were rejected. And round about the same time, Jean Rees married her third husband. She was extremely loyal to her husbands, even in difficult times. And Max Hamer, her third husband, quite rapidly turned out to be as much of a problem character as her first husband had been. He was sent down for fraud for two years to Maidstone. And during those two terrible years, which were 1950 to 1952, Jean Rees, who had already vanished from the scene, many people assumed she was dead although her admirers were still trying to get hold of her books with great difficulty. It would be on a secondhand bookstall in Paris or somewhere like that. But you couldn't find her books in the bookshop. But she admirably followed Max down to Maidstone, took rooms in a pub. She said once, rather touchingly, pub people have always been very kind to me. They're very broad-minded. And the people in the Maidstone pub gave her a room where she wrote an extraordinary private diary in which she put herself on trial and asked herself whether she passed the tests that she would set herself. She charged herself with every sin you can think of, including drinking. And then she said, yes, but I am going to earn my death by my writing, this phrase which comes up again and again in her her private notes. And after Max came out of prison, They were poor, almost beyond description. There was one point where they were living in a horse box in Devon. There was one point where they were living in the hold of a boat and poor Jean Rees fell down the rope ladder and broke her ankle trying to clamber down into this hold where there was no light and a lot of rats. She was terrified of rats. So grim, grim times. But... All the time that they were living in this dreadful poverty, Reese was always remembering the one return she'd made to Dominica when her kind second husband, Leslie, knowing how she felt about her birthplace, took her back to Dominica in 1936. And she found her old home. It had been burned down tragically, but she found another house very like it where they stayed up in the north of the island. And I think it was when I went to see that place, the place where she actually stayed there, and I realized that I was looking at the actual place she describes for the honeymoon in Wide Sagasse Sea, that I began to see how long that book had taken 
to take place in her mind before she actually began to write it. So let's talk about how White Sox SOC happens and how it gets published. What happened miraculously to Jean Rhys was that in 1949, just before Max Hamer was put in prison, they were visited in the home in Beckenham, where Max and, and Rhys were living, by an extraordinary woman called Selma Vazdias. Now, Selma Vazdias, back in those days, was a very big shot, and she had a very big in with the BBC at a time when they were just starting to do radio plays. And Selma had read Good Morning Midnight, and she had adapted it for one woman to play the main part of Sasha and to put it on as a radio play. And this was one of Jean's happiest moments. And alas, it was followed by the awful news about Max. Um, so Reese and Hamer vanished. Selma couldn't even find them again. And it wasn't until 1957 that finally um, Selma persuaded a young woman called Sasha Mawson at the BBC to put on her version of Good Morning Midnight. She tried to get hold of Reese tracked her down through a newspaper advert and found her in Devon, living in one of these miserable homes. And when the play went out on the radio, that was when the turnabout happened. Listening to the programme were two people, Frances Wyndham and Diana Rathill. And Diana Rathill immediately got in touch with Jean Rhys and said, we want to publish you. Have you got anything ready? Well, Jean Rees, I think, sincerely believed she'd been thinking about White Sargasso Sea for so long. This was in 1957. She'd been thinking about it since 1936. And she said, yes, yes, I'll have it ready in a year. So they were delighted. And then they were a little less delighted because, in fact, White Sargasso Sea was not completed until, which I think is significant, after Max Hamer died. And he'd been really in a very bad way for years. And Jean had been looking after him. And then he'd been in a local hospice and a hospital. And it seemed as though Reese couldn't put her story to bed, so to speak, until Max was gone. And it was just after he died that she wrote to Diana Rathill and said, it's done. I can tell you that it's, it's finished. It's ready for publication. So finally, White Sargasso Sea came out in 1966. And Jean Rees, for the first time in goodness knows how many years, had to come up to London for a launch. She was very, very shy. So she was very nervous about all that side and publicity and everything like that. But what did happen was that it won the major prize in England of the time, which was W.H. Smith Prize. And it was then even more significantly picked up in America by the New York Times and the New York Review of Books. And in articles there, the two writers, Al Alvarez and V.S. Naipaul, who'd been nudged by his friend Francis Wyndham to get on and say a bit more about Jean Rees, said not only she is great, but she is perhaps the most important woman writer of our time. And at this point, Jean Rees's life was completely turned around. All her books were suddenly picked up and republished. Many of them never had been published in America till then. But she also, of course, faced what she had always dreaded, 
which is being taken away from her seclusion. She'd finally been given a little bungalow by her kind older brother, Edward, who rented it to her for a pound a year. And although she always complained about it, she was actually very happy living a secluded life in Devon, drinking whiskey on her own, reading lots, um, having quite a few friends, more than she often let on to her London friends in her letters. And Every year, the deal was that she would come up to London to have a wonderful time. Sonia Orwell paid the bills and put her up at a lovely hotel called the Portobello. She was given all the champagne she wanted, bought beautiful clothes, but she had to do the publicity. That was the deal. Just to finish this off quickly. So you mentioned at the beginning that the title I used to live here once literally refers to you know, the fact that she, she came from Dominica. It's also the name of a short story that she wrote, a ghost story. So just tell us something quickly about the use of that title again. I took the title, I Used to Live Here Once, from a story that Jean Rees wrote right at the end of her life when she, she didn't die until she was almost 90. And she wrote in her last 10 years this extraordinary, moving, haunting little story, which William Trevor said he thought was the best short ghost story in the language. And it's called I Used to Live Here Once. And it's the story told in about 400 words of a sort of dream in which somebody who clearly is Jean Rees returns to her old home in Dominica. She doesn't identify it, but it's very clear that that's where it is. And when she arrives at her home, she sees two children standing in front of her front door. And she looks at them and she says hello rather timidly. They don't seem to hear her. And then she goes closer and says hello again. And they look at each other and say, isn't it cold outside suddenly? And shall we go in? And she ends the story by saying, it was then that I realized. And it's so poignant and so sad. And also such a brilliant way of um, leading one back into that world that was always there in her mind. I think there was a part of her that never left Dominica. So I've been talking to Miranda Seymour. We've been talking about her book, I Used to Live Here Once, The Haunted Life of Jean Rees, which is out in the UK from William Collins. Miranda, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I always love talking about Reese, and I, I just want everybody to read her books. She's wonderful. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented, and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by ACAST and published by 89Up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.